Hello, my name is Natalia Fedorshak, and I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. I had the privilege of working on our event, Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy, a Promising Intervention Mental Health Treatment, and I am here today with Dr. Alan Davis, a clinical psychologist, assistant professor of social work, and the director of the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at Ohio State University. Welcome, Dr. Davis, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. We were interested in knowing how you feel that the history between psychedelics and the United States government, particularly during the Nixon administration and the war on drugs, has established a biased perspective against their use in medicine today. Yes, well, actually, that is, I think, the main reason why we now have generations of people who believe erroneously that these substances are dangerous, that they are addictive, and that they have no medical value because they were classified as a Schedule One drug, which the definition of that classification means all of those things. And unfortunately, at the time that that classification was made, it didn't even fit the current scientific evidence of the time. I mean, there was already decades of research that had been done in the United States and in Europe that had established the safety and the medical potential of these compounds. And unfortunately, despite attempts from many of those scientists to communicate in Congress and to write letters saying that like this was not appropriate classification and that it didn't meet those standards, um, the government proceeded anyway. And now, of course, we know that that was in part because of the, the attempt from the Nixon administration to not only enable the war on drugs, but as a function of that, to enable more uh, prosecution against communities of color, to uh, against war protesters, and frankly, a lot of college students who were uh, experimenting with these substances. And in part, you know, they viewed these folks as dangerous because of the, the liberal and kind of open-mindedness that they perceived, you know, was going to, you know, challenge their power. So, you know, it's really unfortunate because it has Set a, set a foundation of inaccuracy and stigma that we're still trying to bring down with the current research. We're still trying to you know, help people understand that the things that they think about these substances are not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. How does the psychedelic research field feel about the Schedule One categorization of psychedelics and what are the current efforts being made, not only by the field, but also by activists and other organizations to kind of change that word categorization? Mm-hmm. So I would say that I, I certainly can't speak for everyone doing psychedelic research, but I would say that everyone that I know that's in psychedelic research com- thinks that it's a complete mistake that they were ever classified as a Schedule One drug, and that at best they would fit under less restrictive categories. Um, So, for example, there was a paper that one of uh, our colleagues wrote basically outlining, like, based on the current evidence, what would the classification be, which would probably be more like in a Schedule 3 or 4 or maybe even 5 category, so more of the least restrictive groups of of substances. You know, as one example, Schedule 4 drugs, which are often prescription medications, one of the Schedule 4 drugs, which is available widely in our country and around the world, is uh, Xanax or benzodiazepine, which has 
so much evidence that it is actually quite dangerous and addictive and that it can be very challenging for people to come off of it. It can create withdrawals and even death. And yet it's one of the more least restrictive substances. And so not only do current schedule one drugs not fit that schedule, but we have other drugs that fit least restrictive schedules that don't make any sense either. So from my perspective, and I think from quite a few people doing frankly, any kind of substance use research, whether it's psychedelics or cannabis or opioids, I think most people agree that the system is broken. The system was not created well to begin with and that changes need to happen. Do you feel that with all of this existing information and history that psychedelics will be able to reach a level in American medicine or like in global medicine where they're respected or held up to the same light as current medical treatments and medications? I think that it's going to be possible. I think right now we are probably within 18 to 24 months of FDA approval of psilocybin for depression and MDMA for PTSD. Those will be the first two psychedelic therapies that are approved. And when that happens, the I think the battle will then become how to train the workforce, how to train providers, how to create the settings that these treatments will take place in. You know, these are unique treatments because they combine a medication with a psychotherapy in a very specific type of environment. Um, and those needs are not currently, you know, that doesn't really fit into our current mental health system. So it'll take a, quite a few years, I think, to address these issues. But as that's happening, I think just getting, you know, the FDA approval and signaling things like, you know, if we're able to, if the DEA changes the scheduling of these substances and, you know, if the Department of Health and Human Services, you know, if Medicare and Medicaid cover them as, as insurers, I think that what we'll see is a hopefully a pretty rapid shift in the understanding of the acceptance of these treatments. And, and hopefully that then goes a long way to help, you know, change the minds of folks who still believe the stigma and still believe that, that these substances are dangerous. Um, I think we're already seeing quite a bit of that shift, even pre-approval, you know, books coming out, documentaries coming out, research papers coming out. There's a lot of you know, celebrities talking about their psychedelic experiences. So I think we're seeing a little bit of a kind of a wave of uh, support and information coming out that I think is already starting to shift some of the minds of people in medicine um, and psychiatry and psychology, but it, I think it'll really shift hopefully in the positive direction once we get FDA approval. Mm-hmm. With the current goals of the field, with that in mind, the long-term goals, do you feel that there is a natural progression towards clinical and translational research in psychedelics that will be accepted by the medical community? I do think that's the case. I mean, I think we are, there are currently, I think, quite a few skeptics out there Mm -hmm. in these research and academic and medical communities. And I think that's, you know, makes sense. You know, they also grew up during, you know, the time where they were told that these substances were very dangerous. And and so what I've learned through my own uh, communication with people who are skeptical about it, um, including, you know, journal editors and other academics and people who just aren't quite sure if, if you know, because on the outside, it kind of sounds a little bit like snake oil, right? Like I can understand why, you know, someone who's working in a community mental health clinic in downtown New York City, who's, you know, giving, you know, treatment to people with opioid use disorders, you know, would come across a, you know, a, a media report about this work and be like, that sounds too good to be true. Like, like my patient population needs 
you know, a lot of intervention, a lot of consistent like psychosocial support, um, might need a medication, you know, and I could imagine them looking at this and saying like, there's no way, like that just sounds like you're, you know, you're blowing smoke, right? Mm -hmm. And and I get that, like I get that because the, the findings are very strong, the findings are supporting that this is perhaps, you know, a more powerful treatment than what we currently have. And I think people have a tendency to doubt that. Um, because of the, you know, the promise of other things that people were told, you know, Prozac coming out in the 70s and, you know, that that was supposed to transform mental health care, right? And it, and it did to some degree, you know, it, it provided a new option for people, um, but people have been through these, these shifts in the paradigm before, you know, SSRIs coming out, antipsychotics coming out, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy becoming a thing. And so I, it, I think people are a little bit dubious yet of like, what is is this actually going to be? What is it actually going to look like? Will it actually, you know, when it's disseminated broadly to the public, will it actually help the same numbers of people that it seems to be helpful in these like very selective small clinical trials? Um, and those questions I think will have to, people have to see what it looks like actually before they're probably going to be open to considering that it might be, you know, really effective. To your point that some people might have skepticism in the field itself or other researchers, do you feel that, do you see many more papers coming in about psychedelic research than you had maybe in previous positions or in previous experience? Yes, I think that we are seeing now a, not just in my work as associate editor at, at Journal of Psychopharmacology, um, I'm also an editor at Journal of Psychedelic Studies, which of course that one's specifically about psychedelics. Um, but what we're seeing, what I'm seeing just in general coming out in the published literature is a huge influx of papers related to psychedelics across all different kinds of disciplines. So, you know, so much of the focus, I think, of the last 20 years, you know, there were a few papers published every once in a while, and they were usually either a clinical trial or, you know, a basic science, you know, looking at animal models or something like from a neuroscience perspective um, or a molecular perspective. And what we're seeing now is a proliferation of papers in social work and counseling and history and anthropology and you know interdisciplinary studies that are showing that this isn't just relevant to the clinical applications or the neuroscience applications, but there are disciplines of inquiry that you know span culture and society and music and education. And I think that's what's actually most exciting to me is that the topic I'm hoping as we get you know less stigma and as we get to the point where um, things are approved, I'm, I'm hoping what that catalyzes is actually more of an openness across the academy for inquiry and studies into these areas. You know, one intriguing area I think are going to be like gender and women's studies, you know, and, and looking at black studies and, and African-American studies and, and culturally how these substances are relevant and or embedded and for some of the cultures have a lot, much longer history than just the westernized you know, medical viewpoint. So, so the answer is yes, lots of stuff coming out. And I think that's just going to continue to proliferate. Now that your lab is kind of turning, I understand that your lab is turning towards more clinical perspective rather than preclinical because of the new study that you're um, engaging with, with PTSD and mm -hmm. psychedelic treatment. Do you have a direction of interest in your work that you see yourself taking towards more of a clinical and translational research scope in, in your lab? Yeah, so my training is in clinical psychology, and so pretty much all of my personal 
research interest uh, that I'm doing is in that clinical and translational space. But we have people on the team um, or on the broader team with the center at OSU that are doing you know, uh, other types of work. We have a, a mycologist who is actually growing mushrooms in a lab and studying the um, not only psilocybin part of those mushrooms, but also the other alkaloids and trying to understand the chemical structure of the mushrooms to better see if we can actually create a natural product as opposed to the synthetic one that we're using now in the clinical trial space. Um, we have folks who are in ecology and bioethics who are, of course, doing a lot of different kinds of things. So, so we don't do, as part of my specific lab, um, anything that's not uh, either clinical or epidemiological based uh, right now. Um, we have uh, lots of epidemiological interest in just understanding the patterns and use of psychedelics out in the real world, especially among special populations or vulnerable populations. We've done a number of studies looking at um, uh, racial trauma among people of the global majority and their use of psychedelics to manage that. Um, we've looked at um, Spanish-speaking populations to try to understand, um, you know, outside of outside of those uh, in the kind of traditional English-speaking world, which is really where psychedelic research has only been in part because if you speak a language other than English, you've been excluded from even being able to participate. Um, one of the reasons for that is that the, all of the measures and tools, even if you had a bilingual team, um, the measures and the tools that are used in research are only validated in English. So we've actually gone through an extensive process now to translate all of these instruments and validate them in Spanish so that decreases a barrier to inclusion there. And then most recently we've been working um, looking at uh, gender and sexual minorities um, and looking at the potential um, identity development um, things that, that people are reporting with psychedelics. So, you know, I think I, I'm hopeful that not only will we continue in my lab to pursue clinical topics of relevance in terms of like the mental health indications, but also these these more nuanced um, ways in which psychedelics might be used in these different communities, either for identity development or racial trauma and discrimination um, or spiritual, psycho-spiritual development. Um, so that's also an interest of mine. On the community level, and something that you mentioned in the beginning was the kind of emergence of psychedelics in pop culture. With companies recently advertising psychedelics mm -hmm. and their purchase, mm -hmm. do you feel that that is jump-starting over where preclinical and clinical research is at, or do you feel that like common consumer populations are ready to purchase psychedelics? Oh, I absolutely think it's it's too soon. <laughs> but I also am a researcher, and I have to remember that my bias is to do careful research that's very well controlled and, and to let the science speak to us about when things should be available and approved. So, so I recognize that's my bias, and I, and I say that it's a bias because I also recognize that for, for there are other reasons that people should be able to make choices for themselves about what they put in their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, I do not, at the same time that I think it's too soon to sell products to the public, I also think that it's too late <laughs> and we need to make changes to like cognitive and personal liberty of people who want to choose to use substances, right? Like mm -hmm. it should not be a criminal justice issue. It should not be a business issue necessarily either. It should be a, it should be a situation where people can choose for themselves, you know, when and how they want to consume substances and to explore their own cognitive and spiritual and physical, emotional experience of life. So, so on the one hand, it, I, I'm hoping that the, the businesses that are getting into this space are setting a foundation, if nothing else, for access and availability. However, 
the way that I've seen some of them market the product, they're leaning on the research as like an indication that people should, it's like, oh, well, there's been a study published on, you know, psychedelics for depression. So take our, you know, take our supplement of mushrooms because, you know, this research, well, the research was not done with the supplement. The research was not done with natural product. It was done with a synthetic drug made in a lab that was you know, tested for purity and dosage. So, and it was done in a therapeutic context and the whole intervention around it. So the, the part that I'm more concerned about is the fact that everyone wants to say like, oh, well, there's this research being done, but actually the products they're selling have nothing to do with the research, but the public's not going to know that. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm more concerned about the, the unethical practices of how they're marketing those products. And, and people are not necessarily because, you know, we, we, currently don't have a lot of education about psychedelics in our culture, people aren't going to know necessarily that, that, that those differences or those nuances. So um, I'm hopeful that, you know, after FDA approval, when there's more regulation around these treatments and the products and more potentially more openness to education on these issues, that we can actually train the public to be able to um, discern, you know, what is right for them and, and to understand that there are especially for psychoactive doses, there's an important set and setting that comes along with these experiences. And if if those things aren't prepared for, if people aren't knowledgeable about how to be safe and how to have these experiences in a safe setting, then there is a risk for, you know, adverse effects. There is a risk for anxiety and, and paranoia. And for some people, for psychotic breaks. And, you know, typically those are minimal risks right now. But obviously we still want to minimize even a minimal risk. So, um, yeah, hopefully more education can come down the road. Definitely. Um, and then for someone who might not be familiar where legislation is on this issue, is there improvement in acceptance of legislation to legalize psychedelic use? Or if there is not improvement, is there at least efforts, I guess, um, being like noticeably, noticeably made? Mm-hmm. So there are a variety of different uh, approaches to changes in legislation. As most people probably know, there can be, you know, municipality and state level advances. We've seen that with, you know, obviously with things like cannabis policy, medical and recreational. So there can be state level changes and then federal level changes. At the federal level, we are currently, uh, the FDA is, you know, reviewing data from phase three trials for psilocybin and MDMA therapy. They are likely to um, have the data they need to make a determination about whether they should be approved for people to have these treatments within the next 18 to 24 months. Because it's so close, they have now signaled to the Biden administration that it's approaching um, and that the data are strong. And so the Biden administration has created a federal task force to collaborate and connect the DEA, the Department of Health and Human Services, the FDA, in order to bring into alignment Um, what will need to shift at the federal level legislatively in order and from a policy perspective in order to actually allow that process to unfold. So my guess is is that within the next 18 to 24 months we will probably see a change to the policy at the federal level around psilocybin therapy and MDMA therapy hopefully with approval from Medicaid and Medicare to cover it, which will hopefully signal to other insurers that that their policies should shift to cover this type of treatment. And then that will likely then set a foundation for, you know, changes across the country in terms of access and availability. However, that's just for the medicalized use of these substances. So that, if that happens, that will be a very specific 
approved structure where it's it's never going to be something where like you are prescribed um, psilocybin and you can just like pick it up at a dispensary and, and you're all good. Like they're not approving the, the take home use of these things. They're approving this, the drug being used within therapy by trained professionals under the supervision of those professionals during the actual dosing. So this will be more likely to be clinics that are approved and, and providers that are approved in those clinics to, to dose people within the therapeutic context in those safe settings and to monitor their safety during the experience. So it's, it's only within that medical approval that things will likely change at the federal level, at least to start. Um, however, at the state level, you know, there's already changes underway to either decriminalize psychedelics. Um, there are several cities and, and towns that have uh, either approved decriminalization efforts or are currently under um, review to decriminalize and to no longer make it a police priority to, um, uh, to either go after people who are using psychedelics or to prosecute them. Um, and there are some states that have uh, Oregon in particular, um, Colorado is another state, I know California and others are currently considering legislation to either approve the medicalized approach with psychedelics or with psilocybin in particular, um, or to um, provide access to um, even recreational psychedelics. So I think that um, we will probably see I think we'll probably have a situation similar to cannabis where states will decide probably things about criminalization of recreational use or medical availability. But once we get FDA approval for the medical version, that hopefully will be approved across the country. Thank you again so much for your time. And sure. the court forum appreciates your lecture and your interview. Thanks for having me.